there was a time in my life uh, where everything was somewhat bright and full of life on the outside. And at that same time, this is back in New Zealand actually, uh, on the inside I was somewhat confused and struggling a little bit. I knew that there was a judgment day coming. Uh, my conscience informed me all too well of the standard that I could not meet, that I read in the Word. And I knew that Jesus Christ, who came to earth to die a sinner's death, that we might embrace Him and be saved. But while I was at Bible school in New Zealand, with all the hype and all the activity that goes on there, calmed down and I was just at alone in my room there, I, my soul was somewhat restless. I was confused. And I don't know if you've experienced this as well, but I had questions as to how to live the Christian life. I had become very familiar with the commands in the Bible, which instructed me of the standard I was to live as a Christian. But how? I asked my teachers, my professors, and counselors that were there, and they often gave me the answer which we might have given a lot in Sunday school, which is Jesus. And that was, I guess, partly true, but didn't really satisfy my, my questions. Uh, I needed to know how, that, how He helped me live the Christian life. They would say to die to self and live to Him and, and, and let Him live in and through you. Um, and I heard this many times, and I even advised others that this is how you live as a Christian. But I still deeply struggled. Uh, so I, I was left with the question, sure, okay, the answer might be Jesus, but what am I supposed to do? What about all the commands in Scripture? Were they for Christ to do, and I was just to sort of be? Uh, it just didn't satisfy me. And I wonder, what do you do? What do you think about as your role in the Christian life, how do you live it out? Is it all freedom in Christ and sin is covered by grace? Or do we keep the law? Or is there a dynamic there? And in a quiet and still moment, reading through this letter from Titus, uh, to Titus from Paul, I found the answer to my dilemma. And I hope this really helps you this morning and going forward in your Christian life. I read about God's dynamic grace in the lives of His children. And I was no longer left mid-step, not knowing where to place my next step. After reading instructions for believers, I now knew how I was meant to live them out, and the motivation for living them out. And when I failed, what would restore my joy to press on? Uh, this text has shaped my understanding of the Christian life and if you haven't already, let's turn to Titus 2 and uh, keep your eyes in there this morning as we study it together. I learned the Christian life is not, as some have said, to let go and let God, as if we, we play a very passive role. It is, and it's not a mystical idea where uh, some will call it a deeper life or a higher life. Instead, it is a completely dynamic work of grace in our lives as we've sung and been reminded of so greatly this morning. Thank you guys for leading us in that. Grace is not merely a satisfying refreshment, like the sound you make after a thirst-quenching drink in this, especially in the summertime. But it's not that, it's not as if it's 
enjoyed once and then gone. Grace is at work continually. Grace doesn't just cover your sin, it craves holiness in our lives going on. Grace is free, yes, but it is a dynamic grace. And it calls us to an ongoing work in the Christian life. So Paul has written to Titus, whom he has put in charge to appoint elders in the churches on the island of Crete. Uh, he has he was there to set in order what remained, it says in chapter 1. Uh, he was to train and appoint structured leadership in the churches that Paul had planted there. And our text this morning is sandwiched between sections of instructions on how Christians <coughs> ought to live. So earlier in chapter 2 and then in, in chapter 3. The Apostle Paul could not write of those truths and conduct apart from focusing on God's grace, which is the foundation and motivation we have to live as a follower of Christ. So this morning we're going to look at three dynamics of God's grace that must be evident in our lives as believers, so that we might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, when we come to meet the Lord. Our lives are not to be mere law-keeping, but instead a vibrant, life-altering display of grace. Now we may use the word grace so often that it's lost its meaning. I uh, there's, there was once a book even called What's So Amazing About Grace? Because I think we've forgotten what is so amazing about it. We've just said, oh, that's God's grace, God's grace, but we've forgotten how amazing it is. I think there's even a song written Amazing Grace. Today we're going to see just how significant grace is to this life and for eternal life. It's not just that we be saved, but it's dynamically involved in every single day from our conversion onwards. So if you have these three words in your mind, you'll know where we're going to go in this message. These three words, power, practice, and purpose. So we're going to look at the power of God's grace, the practice of God's grace, and the purpose of God's grace. These are the dynamics that we're going to see in verses 11 to 14. So the first one, the first dynamic of God's grace is the power of God's grace. And you might remember back to Romans 3, that there is none righteous. There is not even one. We know all that too well of ourselves. So who can reach God's standard for righteousness? This is our dilemma. God's answer was not to bend His righteous standard, but to send His righteous Son. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared. So simply put, grace has appeared. It's not as if the world had never experienced grace before. This speaks of a striking appearance of grace. The manifestation of grace in the form of Jesus Christ when He came. It speaks of that time in history when God sent His Son. That epic event. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent, his, sent forth His Son. Paul is saying that the grace of God has appeared in Christ like it has never before seen. 
grace has now become visible. Such powerful grace is this that it brought salvation for all people. This is not a verse, obviously, to suggest that everyone born was saved, a universal salvation, but rather salvation has become available. Salvation has become accessible. What does Jesus say in John chapter 6? He says that anyone who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. In Christ, salvation has been made available. Christ came for the purpose of ushering in salvation. Grace appeared not with the burden of the law, but with redemption. This is what Christ achieved for us. Grace appeared not with bondage, but with rescue. And verse 12 tells us that grace teaches and trains us even to deny ungodliness and apply righteousness. But can grace teach anyone? Well, yes, but the prerequisite is that you must first taste of it in salvation. Grace must have visited your soul and changed you. When we enter into salvation, we are a new creation and we have new desires. And this is a necessary change. For grace won't teach you or motivate you uh, to lead the ways of the world and to honor Christ with a holy life if you haven't been changed on the, new, on the inside. The story is told of a man who came eagerly but very late to a revival meeting and found the workmen tearing down the tent in which the meetings had been held. Panicking at missing the evangelist, he decided to ask one of the workers what he could do to be saved. And the workman, who was a Christian, replied, You can't do anything. It's too late. Horrified, the man said, What do you mean? How can it be too late? The work has already been accomplished, he was told. There is nothing you need to do but believe it. That is the amazing gospel in Christ, that we just believe in Christ's work on our behalf on the cross. Is this the case for you today? Have you believed in Christ for salvation? Or are you as Christian once was in Pilgrim's Progress? Has anyone read Pilgrim's Progress? Do you remember what his name was? Formerly, before Christian? Graceless. His name was Graceless. If we have believed in Christ, we are no longer graceless. We are no longer graceless. And now in verses 12 and 13, they should be the picture of our daily lives. Because we have tasted of grace and become as graceless was now a Christian. So let's uh, look at verses 12 and 13 together. Uh, God's grace not only has power to positionally justify us before God, but also has a practical work in daily living. And this is where I really found my answers to what my dilemma was and how to daily live out my life as a Christian. 
as believers in Christ, we must work out the practice of God's grace. So we had the power of God's grace. Now we're looking at the practice of God's grace. Verses 12 and 13, which, which read again, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 13, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace has appeared in power to save us, and now in verse 12 we see that it trains us. Grace teaches us. It disciplines us like a parent reproving a child. We are to be like Mary, sitting at the feet of Christ, attending His school of grace. Grace teaches and trains us to practice three things. Firstly, it it teaches us to be denying ourselves. How can we be mindful of who we are and what we deserve and knowing that we've been given grace and not renounce ungodliness? This is how, how grace teaches us. To deny carries the idea of a conscious, purposeful action of the will. Your mind has to be engaged and your will has to be engaged. Ungodliness refers to the true, to the lack of true reverence for God, lack of true devotion to God. We must deny anything that dishonors God. And worldly desires, in verse 12 there, that refers to sins that although we may not actually have committed, we nevertheless long to commit them. These are sinful longings, or cravings, or desires, ambitions, or lusts. So when, when I unfold these things to you, what are these things for you? What things come to mind? What things do you need to be denying? Where does your mind wander in an unchecked moment of the day? What does your heart lust for that you must deny? We must be careful to examine our heart's longings. A man named Thomas Watson said, A hypocrite may leave sin and yet love it, as a serpent casts its coat but keeps its sting. But a sanctified person can say he not only leaves sin but loathes it. We must be diligent to deny fleshly desires for the long term. Which is a hard road. As much as life is brief, it can seem very long at times. And we become weary and tired. And so we must be diligent and keep coming back and reminding ourselves of God's grace. So firstly, we've got to be denying ourselves. Secondly, grace teaches us to be applying ourselves. This is by living, self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Jerry Bridges makes it really simple when he talks about self-control. And he says, basically self-control is yes, saying yes to what we should do, as well as saying no to what we shouldn't do. And the instructions for the different demographics in chapter 2, this is uh, verses 1 to 10. Older men have six directives. Older women have five directives, younger women have seven directives, and younger men have one directive. It's as if 
us younger men can only focus on one thing at a time. Maybe a little insight there from Paul himself. But there's one thing that they must pursue, and it's tough. Self-control. The self-controlled man of God, and woman of God, I would say, has discernment, discretion, and judgment that comes from walking with God. He controls his physical passions. He rejects worldly standards and worldly attractions. Romans 12.3 says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. He judges rightly and acts accordingly. That is to be self-controlled, to be sound in judgment, and to act accordingly. So how is this achieved? It's a pretty tough ask, but we've been given the greatest tool, the sword, the Word of God. Our mind and life must be steeped in the Word of God. And it has to be relentless and persistent. Now, I came from a typically tea-drinking country, so we drink a lot of tea there. Uh, not so much here in Canada. Uh, but when you steep tea, there is usually a recommended time for how long you steep the tea for. And it's usually about a few minutes. But our steeping time for the Word of God in our lives is limitless. It can't be too strong. We should always be doing it. It should be our continual practice. The first two practices of God's grace could be phrased with a biblical counseling term to put off and put on. That's to put off unrighteousness and put on righteousness. And we strive to do this because we deserve God's eternal wrath. But God in Christ has been gracious to us. This is how God's grace daily teaches us. And we should do that out of gratitude, right? Because that was an impossible task for us to do. But God in Christ did it on our behalf. So while we're practicing those two lessons to deny ourselves and apply ourselves to righteousness, thirdly, we should be doing those things thirdly, while we are eyeing our Lord's return, while we are waiting eagerly, it says there. Oh, the, the idea there is eagerly waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So why eagerly wait for Christ? For centuries and millennia, there have been many lives lived where Christ has not yet returned. And you would think that that would be somewhat discouraging for us. But actually, it is quite the opposite. Eagerly waiting for Christ does a great work in our hearts. There is great encouragement to be found, living uprightly when He returns, practicing what His Word teaches us. In verse 13, there is actually, somewhat hidden in there, a marvelous and necessary truth. It singularly separates Christianity from any other religion. A truth that explains why the reformers were burned alive at the stake and literally lit up Europe with the gospel. 
It's a truth that explains why, uh, why a man named Athanasius lived his entire life as a lone voice on earth during the third century, speaking up for this truth. He was known as contramundum, against the world. It is a truth that you ought to be able to say, I would rather die than deny this truth. And this is what I'm referring to, is the doctrine of the deity of Christ. That Jesus is God himself. It is that Jesus, while being a, like a man, like one of us, was and is completely God. It is that wonderful confession of the Roman centurion when he saw Jesus hanging on the old wooden cross and after horrific long hours of mocking and beating and scoffing and whipping and then darkness came over the land, the earth began to rumble and quake and in a moment of divine realization he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Verse 13 talks about the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. That you and I are not waiting for a great God and Savior. Rather, we are waiting for the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Greek, there is actually a definite article there saying the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the big question I know that is burning in your hearts is how do we know that both those words, God and Savior, refer to Jesus Christ? Or should we, as some interpret it, separate it to be waiting for God, the Father, and our Savior, Jesus Christ? To get to the bottom of this phrase in verse 13 is going to take just a quick little grammar lesson. Uh, we always love grammar. Right, so I actually didn't do too well on this, so I was pretty excited to learn this. Uh, there is a grammatical principle in Greek where the deity of Christ is explicitly affirmed. And this is huge because our faith pivots on doctrines like this. The principle is when you have the and then two nouns joined by and. When this happens, it means that without a shadow of a doubt, both of those nouns refer to the same person. For example, uh, let's use something that you guys would know. So maybe uh, Pastor John. So it could be the pastor and friend, John Tucker. Or in this context, it might read our great pastor and friend, John Tucker. Now there is a number of detailed criteria that must be true of each word so that it complies with this rule. Otherwise, you cannot say with absolute certainty uh, that both of those nouns refer to the same person. Uh, for example, they both must be singular, they, they, both, they must apply to persons and not things, and they must be proper names and a couple of other things. Uh, this phrase before us complies exactly with that rule. So we can be absolutely certain that Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. This is a, a huge and important doctrine. So why eagerly wait for Jesus Christ? What motivates us to walk uprightly? Because Jesus Christ is not just Savior. 
he's not a, just a servant of God, although he put himself in that, in that role for us. He is actually God himself. Therefore, he can do all things. He created the universe. He is the grace of God. And his grace is perfect because he is God. His promises are sure, which means his return is certain. He can do it. This ought to bring out a great confidence in his return. Even after for so long, people have been waiting eagerly for his return. He is coming back because he is God. The Apostle Paul wrote of grace coming in Christ, returning as a motivation for believers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. So if you struggle at all for motivation to put off the deeds of the flesh, to live uprightly, live with integrity, think about the return of Christ. Think about who He is and what He's done for us. He is our great God and Savior. And His return is imminent and certain. So, we are to deny unrighteousness, apply righteous living, all the while having an eager eye for Christ's return. It's kind of like preparing for your wedding day. A little less important, but it's kind of like preparing for your wedding day. We long for that day. Hopefully a little less than we long for Christ's return. And some of us are still longing for that day. Uh, when we look forward to something, it changes the way you do things now. Uh, from a, a man's perspective, it, you, you prepare to have, you learn, you look for ways how to love your wife. Uh, that means not doing certain things and doing other things. Of course, we have much to learn after the wedding day itself. But still, we prepare. Or consider the athlete who works hard to train his body to prepare for the coming day of competition. He looks forward to the reward of finishing his race and doing well. And to do that, or to have that hope and achieve that, he must work hard and discipline himself and have self-control in many areas of his life. We must be the same as we prepare for the Lord's return. Personally, we must be denying ourselves of all the worldly passions and we must, must be diligent to apply ourselves to righteousness and eagerly wait for Christ's return. So we've seen as believers that we must know the power of God's grace, we must work out the practices of God's grace, and thirdly, let's understand the purpose of God's grace, which is in verse 14. Believers must heed the purpose of God's grace. It says there of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who is zealous for good works. There's a twofold purpose here that I want you to see. Number one, God's grace reminds us of the cost of our redemption. He gave of himself literally in order to purchase with his blood a people for his own possession. This ought to propel us and compel us to live lives that are upright and to totally disregard any of the ways of the world. Just this reminder itself. 
While in verse 11, grace appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Uh, we saw the availing of salvation, the accessibility of salvation. Now we understand a deeper aspect of this great salvation, that it was costly. That Christ gave of himself. And also that it was specific. That Christ purified a certain people. And that it was personal. That Christ died for a people for his own possession. Isn't that incredible? It's so tender and personal and near. So while salvation was made wide open for all, we understand that not all come to taste of His glorious grace. But here in verse 14, it is a specific people who were purchased. And it cost the greatest cost. These people were bought from the slave market of sin, paid for in full, and they were afforded the ultimate cost for their souls. This is you and me, if we are trusted in Christ. Our redemption came at the greatest cost of the greatest treasure. Isn't that the most humbling thought? You and I were purchased by the death of the Son of God. And this by grace. Not a work of ours. Not in any way that we would have deserved this. There was nothing worthy in us. It was all by grace. That's the first purpose of grace, is to remind us of the cost of our redemption. And the second is God's grace reminds us of the calling of our redemption. He gave of Himself to purify us that we might be zealous for good works. Not that we would be passive and sit around, but that we would be zealous for good works. When Christ came and gave Himself for us, he became the most vivid picture of sacrificial love. Should this not be the most powerful source of motivation for us to live godly lives? Lives that not only turn from wrong things, but do the good things that He has called us to. Remember Ephesians 2.10 says that. It says to walk in the good deeds that He has planned, us, planned for us. We have been purified unto usefulness. Not to coast through life. We have been purified to be useful. He has purified us for the purpose of good works. And we must be careful here not to confuse these works as if they might contribute to our salvation or somehow make us worthy of it in the end. As a teacher guides a child's hand and helps him to form his letters, so that it is not so much the child's writing as the teacher. And so our obedience is not so much our working, but the Spirit's co-working. We're to be zealous for those good works, but it, all the while we're going to be attributing all the glory to God who saved us and changed us and enabled a work of ours or obedience of ours to be considered good. That would never happen apart from Christ and His grace in our lives. Our, our best righteousness before we were saved were like, what? Filthy rags, right? Christ died that we might be redeemed of all sin and be purified for the purpose of bringing Him glory 
which is incredible and a, an amazing thought, but we bring him glory in fruitful works. That is, those are the two purposes, sorry, the two, uh, yeah, the purposes of God's grace to remind us of the cost of our redemption and the calling of our redemption. Grace, I hope you've seen this morning, is dynamic. It's not that once enjoyed and never tasted again. It's we, we have it working in our lives every single day. It is powerful to save and practical for life and godliness and purposeful to remind us of the cost and calling of our redemption. That is, that we are purified into good deeds. Thomas Watson again said, The life of sin is the death of the soul. But by grace, the soul is grafted into Christ the true vine and is made not only living, so not only once tasted, but lively. Grace revives the soul and then makes it thrive. Grace puts forth a divine energy into the soul. Has grace come to your soul? If it has, is it instructing your daily life? Is your soul thriving on grace for life first and then also godly living as you wait for His coming? Or have you trampled on grace, as shamefully we all sometimes do? Have you skipped class in the school of grace and find yourself with your head hanging low? If so, remember what the Lord Jesus Christ paid to purchase your soul. He paid the price of His life. Look back to that day and look ahead to His coming. Your sin will bring you low, but His grace will lift you high and instruct you to live in a godly manner. So as you think back to the introduction when I was longing for clarification on the Christian life, can you see now how this text gave me great hope and understanding? And I didn't, I was no longer confused as to what I should do we're not saved by grace and then left to ourselves to live the Christian life. We're not saved by grace and then Jesus lives it all for us and we don't do anything. It is the very grace that saves us that continues to teach us how to live. Remember that grace was free to us but cost God His Son, which causes and motivates us to live obediently in gratitude for what He's done. Paul in uh, Colossians, Colossians 1, says uh, that he toils and struggles with all Christ's energy that works powerfully within him. So was it Paul or was it Christ? It says all above. He also says in Philippians, he commands the people there to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at, is at work in you. But you must struggle. He said he beats his body into submission to live rightly. But he knows any ounce of faithfulness 
he must give all the glory to God, for it is him who is doing the work in him. If we really contemplate God's grace toward us, that that will be a major deterrent to sin and a major catalyst to righteousness, all while anticipating the marvelous and imminent return of the grace giver himself, Jesus Christ. I hope that's been an encouragement to you this morning as it has been to me and always a, a big lesson to me uh, as I review it and just get reminded of my shortcomings and need necessary, uh, you know, need to heed these great, uh, this great power of grace and practice and purpose of God's grace. So let's just close and pray this morning.